Glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas from me right now that will help you stretch every dollar. That is so key with how so many people are suffering. The newest unemployment numbers out that are shocking that take us to levels last seen during the Great Depression in the 1930s. And one thing I'm going to bring your way later, how do we start reversing that? How do we get the country back open? A big topic in Washington and state capitals today. I'll give you opinions on that. And I want to talk right now about something that has just absolutely fallen apart. And that is assistance to small businesses that many of which are just days or weeks away from shutting down permanently. And it was the intent of Congress weeks ago to get relief to those small businesses. And a lot has gone wrong. There's a new briefing right now on the SBA website at sba.gov that for the direct lending program called the IDLE, the Economic Injury Disaster Loans, for coronavirus, they're not taking any applications. The reason? They ran out of money. They ran out of money pretty much the second day the program was available and started trying to ration money. That didn't work, so they're just flat out out of money for small businesses. Then the payroll protection program that launched with great hope that was going to help businesses from very, very small ones up to businesses that a lot of measurements would say are virtually mid-size with 500 employees, that this program has been a complete fail because of the attitude of the banks, how they've handled the program, and this is atrocious. And when I refer to the attitude of the banks, I'm overwhelmingly referring to the problems that have existed with the large, big four, giant monster mega banks, and then the next tier down, what are known as super regional banks, that, listen to this stat, this was compiled by um, MarketWatch. So 90% approximately of small businesses are companies that employ less than 20 people, 19 or less. And they overwhelmingly have been pushed away and rejected by the banks attempting to apply for the payroll protection program. In fact, based on what MarketWatch has been able to figure out, almost 100% of the $349 billion that is basically spoken for now, awaiting an allocation of more money from Congress, went to 1% of small businesses, those that employ between 100 and 500 employees. Now, think about that. 99% of businesses employ less than that. 90% approximately employ 19 people or less, and they have been shut out overwhelmingly from this lending program by the giant monster mega banks and the super regionals that account for perhaps 80 percent 
of banking market share in the country. Why? Because the big businesses of the small, the ones that employ 100 to 500 people, tend to have very solid relationships with these super regional banks and the four giant monster megas. They have a personal banker. People know who they are at the bank, more or less. And they came first in line and with many banks, the only in line for this money. The small number of community banks around the country have tried heroically to get lending to businesses of less than 100 people, but they have not been able to get enough loans processed through the SBA system to get any significant share of the money. When Congress eventually reaches a deal on this, the banks must be required as part of additional funding to no longer discriminate against businesses based on their size. The banks just don't want to be bothered with a small restaurant, a small retail store, a small business of any kind, because it's just not their thing. Well, let me tell you something. Congress needs to require that it's their thing and get this relief to smaller small businesses and not just the biggest of the category that was considered to be small business, 100 to 500 people. In addition, you should know that now non-traditional, non-banks are in this process. PayPal is one, um, Cabbage is another, K-A-B-B-A-G, a number of small business lenders that are not banks are either already in the program or soon will be, and they are not turning their noses up at you if you have three employees or 14 employees or 25 employees. And shame, shame, shame on the banks that we saved during the banking scandals that led to the financial crisis and the Great Recession, that we gave them $2.5 trillion, and basically nobody went to prison for all the criminal behavior, and now they are turning their backs on Main Street in the United States. This is hideous and unacceptable behavior by the banks. Uh, we're going to go to your questions. I want you to post questions for me at clark.com slash ask. And Kim and Joel are looking through the many thousands of questions you're posting and looking for things that people are asking about a lot each day and asking your questions for you. And Kim, what do you have first? All right. So we got a lot of questions overnight about the stimulus checks and Ugh. a bunch of different angles from a bunch of very confused people. So I think Joel and I are just going to hit you with a few of them to start out. Just to see if you can overload my brain. Yes, exactly. Okay, good. Exactly. That's my goal in life. All right. All right. So we're going to start with Clayton. 
Clayton says, I'm worried that I haven't received my stimulus money. I went to the IRS website, get my payment, and was told that according to the information we have on file, we cannot determine your eligibility for payment at this time. It then directed me to an FAQ section, which gave me absolutely no guidance on what I should do. I filed my taxes in 2018 and paid them. I have not yet filed for 2019 because of the extension. Any suggestions? Okay, so first let me explain. That is a canned response at irs.gov. So what happened was in the speed to try to get these checks out is they wrote code for this particular issue, where's my money? The responses are all garbage. So unless you specifically fit an exact circumstance like your money is already on its way or whatever, everybody, no matter what, gets that fake response. And Kim, didn't you tell me that even if you put in fake information, it's still going to give back that same response? That's absolutely right. So it, it doesn't mean anything when you get that garbage response. Repeat again the exact phrase that people are getting is the canned meaningless response. Sure. It's according to the information we have on file, we cannot determine your eligibility for a payment at this time. So the information portal is essentially useless right now till the um, software is rewritten and the information people get can actually be useful. Gosh, this sounds so bad. All this stuff. Joel? That's true. A lot of bad news right now. Uh, Bradley had a question. He said, I checked my helicopter money payment status on the IRS website and it advises that I was supposed to get the money on April 15th, ACH'd into my bank account. The money will be deposited into an account that I no longer have though. So have you heard of others saying this and do you know of a solution? Okay. So this has been happening over and over again where people are having money attempted by the IRS to deposit into an account that either is incorrect or no longer exists for you. And so the IRS says they know this is going to happen a lot. They say that the ACHs will bounce back and that I can tell you at that point, it's going to be a, a while before you're going to be able to get your money. The IRS says in those circumstances, they're going to mail you a check and the checks are supposed to start being mailed in the next while, whatever that means, but will take into late summer or into early fall for everybody who will get paid by check instead of direct deposit to get their money. Kim? Shelley says... Regarding the stimulus checks, I've heard that if we have open collections, that collection agencies can take the money directly from our accounts and that banks may even be taking the money for overdraft fees. That is, both things are true. So a number of banks, people who um, had direct deposit of the stimulus checks already occur where they came in by ACH, the money vanished in a nanosecond. Because if you had any dispute with the banks, the banks got, as part of the right of the legislation in Congress, the ability to seize any funds if the bank felt you owed the bank any money. 
Now, the bank gets to be judge, jury, and executioner on this, and there was no appeal set in the legislation or in the regulations. So the bank, if you had any dispute about an unpaid check, a bounce check, um, overdraft, anything like that, they can totally unilaterally seize the $1,200 per adult, $500 per kid, and grab it. Also, if there's any existing garnishment of you, the bill collectors can seize the money. Now, the answer to this is you don't want your payment by direct deposit in that case. You want to receive it by check or go to the IRS website and change where your money is deposited. And you can even use Walmart now. Walmart has come up with a procedure where the money will deposit on a Walmart money card that no debt collector can get to and no bank can grab. Joel? Clark Margaret wrote in, she said, my father's 89 years old and he has received his stimulus funds, but he received $2,400 and my mother died in September of 2019. So how can we return the funds that distributed to her? Well, first of all, I'm sorry about the loss um, that he has suffered the money that he received that he was not supposed to receive, there is no procedure yet in place for people who inadvertently receive money for a deceased individual or something like that to return it. And once that procedure is established, we're going to post that on Clark.com and I'll also talk about it here on the show. But right now, there is no procedure to return money that you were not supposed to receive. All the efforts of the feds right now have been trying to get the money to people, not take back money they were not supposed to pay. In the midst of all this dreadful news that we're dealing with with coronavirus and the economic effects, I want to tell you that each day we are doing a Clark Rave segment. We've put the Clark Rageous moment in the deep freeze for now. And I want to concentrate at this time each show with where people are making a difference, positive things that are going on in this very trying time for us, not just as a nation, but also for us as a world. And I wanted to focus on things teenagers are doing that I think is really, really neat. So first, there was a story in the Des Moines Register. and it's about a 17-year-old named Tanner who was bored to tears and found out what kind of problems people that were elderly were having getting basic supplies, getting food, getting um, medicines picked up and things like that, that either physically they're not able to go out or even if they are, you know, coronavirus is so dangerous once you have had your 70th birthday onward or 60th birthday if you have severe pre-existing conditions. In fact, overwhelmingly, the deaths from coronavirus have been in people 70 and older. So this 17-year-old came up with the idea of setting up a free service to get groceries and whatever other supplies seniors need who are low income, don't have the money to pay for a delivery service, 
And besides, if you've seen the stories the last couple of days, the grocery delivery services, Instacart and Shipped, in some cities are backed up now weeks before they can take yet another delivery. So this is just great. This kid's now put together a charity and a website that's called Angel Hands that are doing, taking orders from people, doing the deliveries for free, and getting them the supplies they need. And on top of that, another teen, a 16-year-old called TJ, who loves playing across, can't play now, but at 16, he already has his pilot's license. What's he doing? He's flying in emergency medical supplies to rural hospitals. Lives in Virginia, in northern Virginia, in the Washington, D.C. area. But Virginia has a big rural area that's isolated, and he's flying in the emergency supplies for them on a private plane. Kids making a difference, a 16-year-old and a 17-year-old, seeing the problem, being the solution. I love it. It's my pleasure to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want to tell you we're working night and day at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com to bring you information that will help you with the money you have to make it last as long as you can during coronavirus. And there's such a political debate going on in the country right now about how do we get back to work? How do we go from where we are right now to having the country open again? And I wanted to turn your attention to what's going on in countries that are further along than us. We're having a really difficult time with coronavirus. We represent less than 4% of the world's population, but about 30% of the confirmed cases of coronavirus. So it's gotten away from us a bit here. But we've got to figure out how to get parts of the economy moving again, because if we don't, and this drags on, the hardship on Americans and the time to recover stretches so much. So how do we do it? Well, let's look at Germany. Germany is uh, further ahead of us from when coronavirus attacked the population to where they are now. And Germany has been essentially closed much longer than we have with strict quarantine or shelter in place or whatever you want to call it, the shutdown. And now Germany is allowing businesses to reopen this weekend. Um, Most businesses in Germany are going to open, probably a lot of German businesses don't operate on Sundays, so they'll open on Monday likely. And the businesses that can open are all small businesses with approximately less than 9,000 square feet of space at their retail store. In addition to larger stores uh, like that have already been allowed to be open, groceries, pharmacies, banks, gas stations, and then others that they have designated in various German states as essential. Well, schools are also going to go back into session in just a few weeks, and actually about two weeks. And in addition to that, 
there are restrictions that remain in place on any gatherings. So no sports activities, no religious activities, no cultural activities where people would be in close quarters to prevent a reemergence of a spread of coronavirus. The other thing is the Germans are going to flex the restrictions based on what happens in large metro areas or in individual German states. So let's say there was a big outbreak in a large German city like Berlin. So it would go back into a tight lockdown to snuff out a reemergence of coronavirus. But the key to the German system is testing, tracing, isolating, and treating. And there was a meeting yesterday of the president with his appointed business council. And the president was really surprised, apparently, when the business leaders said over and over again, doesn't matter if you or any state says things are open for business, people aren't going to feel comfortable and go out and about if they don't know that we have a system in place for testing and what happens after you test people. And we don't have that yet. So this is the area we need to work on so hard in the United States to get things reopened is, again, testing, where you do both randomized testing and right now in the United States, we generally are only doing testing and of a small percent of people who may have coronavirus. And then we have to trace, which is the big um, project from Apple and Google, where they're able to use technology anonymously to trace everyone who someone who tests positive with coronavirus may have been in contact with during a period that they would be potentially a carrier that could infect them. If you're notified, you don't know who it was you might have been in contact with, but you know that you've got to be checked out. And then isolate people who have it and then treat them in the one, two, three, four system you probably have heard me talk about before, where people are divided symptomless, where they're basically just housed in isolation, and then low level of symptoms treated in a convention center hotel, something like that, and then categories three and four, period, people that are more ill or people that are gravely ill are treated in a hospital environment. The truth is people are not going to feel comfortable reemerging unless we get to where the Germans, the Taiwanese, the South Koreans, the uh, nation of Singapore, and the um, possession of China, Hong Kong, have done with these strategies where you know who's got it early enough so you can isolate outbreaks so people feel more comfortable going out and about. Now, in Germany, and also we're going to see happen in the United States, it's either going to be uh, recommended or required that when you're out and about, you wear a mask. And this means that there's not a full opening. For example, under the German opening coming this weekend, travel is still heavily restricted. So uh, train travel only that's essential, air flights that are only essential. Otherwise, you are allowed to move around your community 
and that's it. So that doesn't mean a full reopening of an economy, but it allows a portion of the economy that's been in lockdown in two-thirds of the world to start to reopen. And this is the roadmap for us as well, because the alternative is if you don't have testing, tracing, isolating, and treatment in place, and you just say, okay, everybody go back out, the uh, second wave of infections would be far more serious and deadly than this first wave. And in turn, the economy would be hurt even more. We do need to get the economy open as quickly as possible, and we've got to get these protocols in place so that can happen and the german system of being flexible opening up more as coronavirus becomes less and less a threat in a part of the country is great if it becomes a big threat again in a particular part of the country or city you tighten up again and that accordion will continue until we have first wave effective treatments second wave a vaccine Producers Kim and Joel are answering your questions that you post for me at Clark.com slash ask. And who's up first? It's me, and I have a question on behalf of Sherry. She says, I just started receiving the extra $600 per week for unemployment benefits. That is great news. Will this portion of my unemployment be taxable income? I've heard conflicting answers. Yes, it is. Unemployment compensation paid by the feds through this special coronavirus supplement or by your state, their taxable income as if you received wages. And most states, if not all, have a procedure where you can have a certain amount of your unemployment withheld for federal tax so you don't get hit with a big tax bill later for the unemployment you received. I want to add something we've never discussed here, Kim and Joel, And that is under many state unemployment systems, each week you have to do like a a mini checkup with your state online telling them you're still unemployed. And that's something a lot of people who've never had experience filing for unemployment think you do an application and then it just goes on automatic pilot for the next many months up to 39 weeks. And it doesn't work like that in most jurisdictions. You have to essentially notify them, hey, I'm still here. I'm still unemployed. It's a very quick procedure online, but you must do it in many states to have your check continue. Joel? Clark Ed says, I listen to your podcast every day, and I want to thank you for your down-to-earth advice. My question is uh, that you say to stay the course and contribute monthly to your Roth IRA through ups and downs. But what if you contribute once a year? I normally contribute the full amount to both my Roth IRA and SEP in February or March, which I did this year for 2019. My job is fairly secure and I'm relatively financially stable. I've got no other debts than a little car loan, which is almost paid off. I can afford to contribute to my Roth now for my wife and I. So should I contribute now while the market is lower or wait until later in the year or the beginning of next year to contribute for 2020? I know it may be a pain, but it's to your advantage to contribute to the Roth in roughly equal amounts, if you're doing the max, $500 a month, because it lowers the shock to you 
of a sudden market decline, and it's a method called dollar cost averaging. You know, over a uh, 10 or 20 year period, doing one contribution a year all at one time, like you've already done in the example you gave, is probably not going to make any difference versus doing the monthly contributions. But when I think about the psychology and what's known as the studies people do under a subfield of economics called behavioral economics, that people have a really hard time psychologically when they put in a lump sum, then suddenly there's a big decline in the market. They may freak out. They may even sell out their positions. If you do it monthly, you're getting the you're riding along the roller coaster, but every time the market declines and you've made a contribution, you're essentially getting more bang for each buck, getting more shares for the ultimate eventual recovery of the investment markets. Kim? Jackie has just a bit of advice for everyone else. She says, like so many, I'm working from home and heard you mention Zoom and some of the privacy issues, and she wanted to give out some tips to prevent the Zoom bombings. She has learned the hard way, she says. First of all, the host can set up a password, which is incredibly helpful. And then after everyone arrives to the Zoom meeting, you can set a lock after all the participants are there and no one else can join. She says it has worked for her. That's great advice, and I appreciate that because Zoom is, of all the things out there that have really come to life and become on people's consciousness or in people's consciousness since coronavirus, it's probably the most polarizing, where people are using it a ton who'd never heard of it weeks ago, and at the same time, there are lots of others that are afraid of it because of the security issues. And if you missed us talking about this, uh, there are other alternatives that we have written up at Clark.com that you can use to do those meetings online that maybe are not as much a target right now of people trying to cause havoc. And I appreciate those suggestions about how you've made Zoom safer for your Zoom meetings. Joel? Clark Lowell says, you mentioned a while back that home security can be had really inexpensively these days. In light of COVID-19 and the unemployment it has caused, I'm concerned now more than ever about my home when I'm away. So would you please revisit your recommendations for home security for those of us on a budget? Sure. Now, I did a thing where I installed a system. Producer Joel has installed a system and moved it three times over the years. These things are very easy to install. They're very cheap to buy. And after analyzing the three bigs, which are Nest, Ring, and Simply Safe, I ended up going with Ring because it has the best deal available for ongoing monthly professional monitoring. I pay $100 a year for it. And Ring has just introduced a brand new system that is the same price as the old one and has a lot of advancements in it. You'll typically pay, depending on how big your home is, uh, somewhere around $200 to $300 for the hardware you need. And then again, the very cheap monthly monitoring. Uh, It took me for what other people say they can install a system in their home in about 30 minutes. It took incompetent me three hours, but I saved a fortune versus a traditional professionally installed system. 
and it works great and I can control it from my phone. So check all of them out because you may decide you like one of the others better than how I feel about the ring system. But see which one feels right to you and always look at that ongoing monthly cost, which can be really high with several of the self-installed systems. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. If you have a question for me, remember, post it at Clark.com slash ask. And producer Kim, who do you have a question from? This is from Michael. He says, I need to update slash change my will. Where do you suggest I do this in the cheapest way possible? So if your last will was prepared for you by a lawyer and you just need to make minor changes for consistency and continuity, it would be good to call the lawyer who did it and see what he or she would charge you for the probably pretty minor changes you need to make and who's going to get what. If it's a really major change and the lawyer would be too much money, is a stopgap till you could afford the help of a lawyer to do it, you could go to nolo.com, N-O-L-O.com, and get Willmaker, which is the most developed program that exists, to do your own will. I don't recommend, though, that you use Willmaker. I should say it retails at 89 bucks, but Nolo often has a lot of discounts on it. Um, if your situation is complicated, you have a lot of assets, you have blended family, you have people who might fight about money when you're gone. In any circumstance that adds complexity, you want to have a lawyer do it, even if it's going to require you to open up the wallet more. But for a huge percent of people, using a program like Willmaker is just fine. Joel? Clark David says, is now a good time to consolidate debt? I have credit card debt that I want to consolidate, and the mortgage loan folks are offering a 3.25% mortgage with $7,200 in closing costs. Personal loans might be about 6%. There's no closing costs there. So I own my home now with no mortgage. What's better, a 15-year mortgage or taking out that personal loan? I prefer you take out the personal loan, even though the rate is higher. Remember, you won't have all those closing costs. So the fact that the rate maybe as much as twice what you'd pay on the mortgage is really not important. The other thing is I don't want you to go back into a long-term debt like 15 years against your home. When you have personal debt that is not secured by your home, that puts your home at risk, and I absolutely don't want you to do that. So go the personal loan route if a consolidation is, in fact, what you need to do. The podcast normally would end here, 
But because of the unusual circumstances we're in, we have additional content that we recorded earlier today that I'd like you to have access to. And this will continue day by day as long as the events warrant. And I want to tell you that I had a question posted by Steve who asked, hey, now that I'm having to work from home, am I able to deduct the cost of having a home office? And this is one of those things that has a lot of angles to it. So I want to address for you when you may be able to deduct the cost of a home office. If you're working for an employer and the office isn't open now and you're working from your home, the best interpretation from tax professionals is that you are not allowed a deduction for the equipment you bought and the chair you bought and the desk you bought and whatever you had to to do a home office that your employer is able to do so and credit you for it. So this is something that over the years people used to ask me a lot about home offices but since the new tax law went into effect three years ago the home office thing is not nearly as easy as it was before. But your employer is able to catalog all the expenses that you have, reimburse you for them, and they are allowed to take a full credit for it. But if you are self-employed and you're working from your home and it's your course of business, yes, you can set up a home office or have one and be able to take a deduction that's taken a couple of different ways on your return. So one of the things is you have to dedicate a space and it has to be used only for the business that you're doing, nothing else. So if you or older, you may remember a show called WKRP in Cincinnati where Les Nessman was not given a private office and he wanted one, so he put masking tape on the floor to mark off his imaginary office. Believe it or not, if you're taking an open room in your house and you're making it into an open office, there was a write-up on the street.com that said that's exactly what you should do and take a picture of it. Measure the square footage. And then I have had in the past a situation where I had a home office that I deducted. And the square footage formula is key for you to do so. So you take the total square footage of your home, you divide it uh, by the square footage you're using, for the home office and that calculates for you the amount of your space that is able to be deducted. There are other things involved with being able to get a full deduction and we have a link for you on our show notes at Clark.com. And here's something else I wanted to talk about today. I want to talk about one of the things that happens when you have a terrible event in a society is the innovation 
that comes out of it. So any anything that is a dark cloud like we're under with coronavirus always will have innovations that result. And these innovations will be a benefit to society for a good long time. An example of the crazy stuff going on is what's happening with pharmaceutical companies actually working together, arch rivals, working to speed up the process of coming up with a vaccine so that coronavirus doesn't hang over our heads anymore. Only in an emergency would something like that happen. And then I think about Bill Gates with the unbelievable thing he's done where he's building, I don't know if you know about this, Bill Gates is taking billions of dollars and building factories that may never be used that will be for making different versions of a vaccine. Because we don't know what type of vaccine is actually going to prove successful. But once that's proven, there's a big ramp up involved in making those doses of vaccine. So Bill Gates is building these factories so that they'll be ready already day one, the second a vaccine is proven to be safe and effective to start making them, which will get them out to people and save lives so much quicker. Another area that is not getting much attention but is going on right now is how companies that design and manufacture advanced robotics are modifying their robots right now for completely different uses. I saw an item in the Wall Street Journal about how a company has developed a robot that's being used already in hospitals in Europe, hopefully will be coming here, that can process test results for people for coronavirus so much faster than it can normally be done by humans and input it directly in the database so that in minutes rather than hours, or in some cases days, the results are known and can be acted on. And, I mean, think about that, that using robotic technology to do that. There's another technology that's being used in New England, where a chain of senior living facilities is using a robot that has 3D mapping, sensors and voice commands, that's able to go to a patient and hook them up for a video chat, deliver packages to them collect items from people, and by doing this, reduces the number of possibilities of senior citizens with human interaction with staff having a transmission of coronavirus, because one thing that's been clear is how much more vulnerable senior citizens have been. Then retailers, hospitals, and other facilities are deploying armies of robots that can sanitize spaces. Uh, robots specifically in medical environments that do extreme cleaning beyond what a human can do. And then in the grocery aisles and retail stores, 
these cleaning robots are able to clean more thoroughly and much quicker than a human can do. The other advantage is right now we want to hold down the count of people inside retail stores. These robots are able to do so. So this is a case where technology that people fear, robots taking their jobs, actually could be working to save people's lives. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.